Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Nazira Dawood, CEO of Vendorship, Inc. We will discuss how minority businesses can win government contracts. Prior to co-founding Vendorship, Inc., Nazira had a career as a medical doctor, worked for eight years in public service as director of the Fulton County Health Department Health Promotion Division. She was county chief of staff at the Board of Commissioner Chairman's Office, where she developed knowledge of governmental proposal processes. Nazira has served on the review board of the inaugural Fulton, Fulton County District Attorney Conviction Integrity Unit. According to her biography, she's a serial entrepreneur with a wide professional network. Nazira founded Vendorship, Inc. to ease the entry into government contracting. She's also Vendorship's Chief of Client Happiness. Welcome, Nazira. Thanks so much, Elena, for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Okay, now before we get into the topic at hand, what is a Chief of Client Happiness? What, what, what does that mean? That's a great question. So I, I believe every entrepreneur or startup businesses know that the clients actually make the company grow and flourish, right? So it's just like customer service. So um, each of our uh, company's uh, team members have this title, including their other titles that they have as chief of client happiness, basically, which means we are trying to make sure the customer service is completely met, the client is happy with our services. If there are any challenges, we make we make sure we address them as well. So that sounds a little bit like what used to be called customer service. Is that yes. right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's just uh, more modernized or uh, perhaps more fund-sounding title, right? Exactly. So I, mean, it's, I, I guess customer service has become sort of like a, um, uh, you know, used to name where people are not focused on it much, but because of this title, you asked exactly, like, what is like what does it entail, right? So it's just a new way of getting attention. Okay. So I have a number that sounds very impressive, which is, that $660 billion is awarded in government contracts every year. This came from you, right? Yes. What is the source of that information? And tell us a little bit more about what that means, please. Sure, definitely. So um, this is a very well-known statistics um, for the federal government. Uh, and federal government puts these numbers out. So uh, when you go into general administration services, um, into government contracting websites from the federal government, you will see these numbers. So why is this number very important? It's, it's anywhere from 600 billion plus that is spent every year. And uh, Elena, as just for your audience's um, knowledge, U.S. is the first um, it's the largest country that puts this, this much amount of contracts out. So number one across the world, 600 billion plus dollars are spent in federal government contracting. That means they're giving the money out for small businesses, for states, for counties, for cities to take up and perform services and if commodities needed. So that's the number that we are talking about. That's how much government, federal government gives out for contracting. And how is that broken down? Because it's clearly not awarded evenly across the board to small businesses or minority businesses, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about how that $660 billion a year is awarded. Sure. So um, uh, what happens is these billion dollars are actually divided into departments, uh, agencies within the federal government. You've heard of Department of Defense. You have the Labor Department, the Health Department. So these dollars are going into these departments, first of all. And then these dollars are further divided. And as the government puts out the contracting so into education departments, if you may know, um, and then, then they're put out for contracts. So then the small businesses are the large corporations have an or, uh, have an opportunity to respond to these bids. As I mentioned, these are only federal contracting. 
there are billions of dollars available in the local county and city government as well right sometimes for any small business to go into into directly into federal contracting is not something that we advise or recommend unless they have a great track record from prior um, business experiences we the reason mentorship uh, our company was formed elena was because we saw this gap and the void that exists in the government sector people usually forget when you mean when you talk about government they forget that we are also talking about the state county and city which is the local government right um you have the city department you have the fire department police department all those the tax services that we that we use and and they provide services to the communities so when the first myth i want to bust is when people talk about government we don't want them to think that it's only the federal government and when you talk about the federal government it's so complicated so much complex budget is set up people are like oh my gosh i don't think i can ever do business with them because they have all these paperwork and documentation which is true there is lots of documentation and paperwork to be taken care of so usually small businesses shy away from government sector so what we found the void was in the local government so that's why we sort of stressed upon some of the small businesses that they have this different opportunities low hanging fruits right under their you know in the in their backyard to look at opportunities for so that's the main reason we formed uh, our company to educate and coach professional firms uh, commodity uh, firms with commodities who have any services to offer to the government to start with the local government where it's much easier i would say um, uh, i mean any government sector is not much easier but probably much uh, comparatively to the federal government it's a easier step uh, that can be broken down much easily and uh, having a coach really helps them get there much faster who gets these awards at the moment if can you paint a picture for us by geography by ethnicity etc yeah sure so um, according to zipia's report which is a data scientist research uh, they have uh, probably broken down or used the database about 30 million profiles again this is just i'm talking about the federal government i'm uh, i'm not aware or sure about the v, about the exact numbers in the local government but i'm thinking it's going to reflect almost similarly to the federal government opportunity so well, zipia has sort of uh, used the database of 30 million profiles and uh, based on demographic graphics and statistics for the government contractors and they found out that almost um, 77.77 percentage uh, are uh, white contractors right followed by hispanic or latino contractors which is almost to 15% and then black or um, uh, african american uh, contractors which are almost up to 4 percentage 3.5 to 4 percentage these numbers do keep changing um, based on more businesses getting into government contracting but these are just the average level at this point so clearly there's a um uh, mismatch between uh, the numbers um so the reason why we we love to work with or we encourage or empower the small businesses to get into government contracting is just because the opportunities are available and um if you want i can also give you the numbers of um uh, the entities that are, that exist right like from starting from 50 states plus union territories plus the 3000 plus counties and almost 20000 cities um these are each entity with their own budget with their own leadership um with their own decision making entities that put opportunities out for small businesses to respond to their bids right um so uh, i've not even mentioned the schools almost 100000 public schools across because each of you can imagine each of these entities do need um you know technology services they they do need government uh, commodities or other professional services even janitorial services right or um, uh, commodities such as school supplies computers so the they can't government one thing about government is they cannot just award a contract just because someone is a friend or someone is a commissioner 
and they've taken pictures or a photo op with one of the decision makers and they think they can get the contract. No, government goes through an open, transparent process to get these awards to the uh, minority businesses. The, the, the theme for us or the goal for us as vendorship team is to bring more minority businesses into this playing field. What year is this data that you shared with us from, the Zipia data? So I believe it's recent, probably from any uh, after 2020. I don't have the exact year, but I'm certain it's after 2020. And I noticed that no Asian Americans or Native Americans are on the list. Do they just not participate? Um, it's my, I would say probably the percentage is too less for them to even bring up a percentage, maybe less than 1% or point. And definitely we've seen very, very less few Asian, Asian uh, contractors that are awarded even with our own uh, work that we do. So if we're talking about specifically federal contracts here, are there particular areas of the country, states or regions where most of the contracts go. For example, it occurs to me that since these are federal contracts, perhaps most of the contractors are based near the government seat. Uh, is that is there any information on that? Yes, so, so most of these, because majority of these federal government agencies are in D.C. and around, so yes, definitely some of these, um, the, the major part of the contracting opportunities that are available might be near D.C. and uh, Virginia, around in and around those areas, but that doesn't mean their services doesn't expand beyond those states. So uh, definitely federal contracting agents such as CDC is in the metro Atlanta, Georgia, in, in Georgia, right? So you, you would see more of CDC and HHS opportunities available um, in Georgia. But again, uh, just because Georgia has a health need doesn't mean California doesn't have a health need. So they're all distributed, but majority of the defense or labor contracts are available in and around um, DC and the um, metro, the DC, around the DC area. But again, um, it's very different for local, for local, state, and city governments because their contracts have to be located in in our city. So suppose I'm from Metro Atlanta, so the contracts that go out, the services would be needed to be done in city of Atlanta, not in DC. So that's where the local government opportunities differ. They're not, they're not located specific to any other state or city, but they're located into where they are actually placed. What about gender? What do we know about gender and federal contracts? Sure, yeah. So um, gender opportunity specifically, again, um, uh, depends on how many uh, women-owned businesses are responding. Um, what we've seen is, of course, people are, many are not even registered uh, to be government vendors, right, in order to uh, go to the next step. But even those who are registered are not responding to government opportunities. So these facts are only gotten when someone wins a contract, not just because they're registered. Being registered is different from actually winning a contract. So what we know is almost 44%, again, through this data from Zipia, is 44% of government contractors are women, while uh, men are more than 50, almost 50, 51% are men. Um, uh, I, the thing is, people are going after women, you know, people do register themselves as women-owned business, but have they taken the next step to secure a contract from the government, either in the federal, state, city, or county level? And what do you think, what is the relationship there that, that seems, actually I'm surprised at how high that is. Is it 44% in terms of number or is it 44% in terms of the total amount? So 44% of the $660 billion or just 44% of the contracts? I would say 44% of the contracts or the contractors who have won contracts with the government. It, it would, it would not, it would be much different if the amount of, if we actually alluded to the 660 billion. So again, the 660 billion 
is the amount of um, money that is available out there. But out of that, maybe only 400, um, you know, depending, just hypothetically, there's a certain figure that was allocated to government contractors. But the other thing, Elena, that I want us to stress upon is that even though these are big corporations that are winning uh, some of these big contracts in millions, they have to have a certain percentages allotted to the small businesses. So we want to make sure that the small businesses, uh, no matter what their diversity represents, are knowledgeable about these opportunities that they can always be a subcontractor to these huge contractors who won the contract because the government demands that 23 to 26% um, goes to these small businesses. And that's when the large corporation will be awarded. So even when you respond to a bid of multi-billion dollar contract, you have to show in your response that you're connecting or you are talking to the uh, small businesses and how you allocated the 23 to 26 percentage for the small businesses. And how is small business defined for purposes of our discussion? Because that itself is a complicated uh, definition, right? Yes, definitely. So a small business, again, um, can be defined if they have less than 10 employees, less than 50 employees, or their revenue is less than $30 million, right? Um, so the small, specific to the Small Business Administration, they define a small business as less than $30 million revenue um, to consider themselves or even respond to becoming a application to fill up the small business application. But we also have women-owned. So a small business is a small business, but then there's also percentage of dollars that is allocated to women-owned businesses, right? Maybe there's a 5 percentage that the federal government asks this particular bid to go for some small or women-owned businesses. Then there is disadvantaged business opportunities. So these are eligibility criteria that some of the businesses have to look into to respond uh, to, to be an active uh, player in the playing field. But again, sometimes for local opportunities, some of these uh, criteria are not really needed. So you can the re, you can go ahead and in small for local entities, you don't need any of these certification. That is something that you can get it along the way, but is not necessarily needed to do business with the government. So what is the minimum threshold? For example, you said a business of thirty million. Revenue, annual revenue, or I think you said under 10 employees, is there a minimum threshold at which you can't participate? Say, for example, somebody's just started a company and has no employees or they're the only employee, would that be possible? So, they, so yes, even if you, so we, so uh, personally, as we are running our business, we are seeing a company that just started with one person respond to a, respond to a government uh, contract opportunities as a, as a prime because they have previous experiences working on similar projects. If they can show themselves very credible, if they're able to show, the, show themselves as bringing a very knowledgeable experts team to work on this proposal and are able to deliver, deliver the results, the government is willing to review their proposal and give a fair share of uh, a scoring or evaluation for them. Uh, so there's no minimal uh, requirement. Sometimes people, and that's how every company starts, right? Uh, but the other opportunities are you can become a subcontractor no matter what your revenue stream is. You don't have a revenue stream. All you can show is what is that service you provide? What is that best deliverable that you can provide? And are you a small, you know, if you started just one year or less than one year or less than 50 employees, you're considered as a small business. But sometimes the government, the prime contractors are looking for subcontractors in order to win the proposal, not just because they're a small business, but because they bring their own um, uh, strategic or skill sets to the table. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would. How does that work? Because it seems that the the balance is very different there, meaning the subcontractor it has very little leverage in that situation. Yes, yes. Um, so usually subcontractor has a less leverage, and you can see the prime contractors only signing up with the subcontractor for some, some reasons, right? One, they want to strengthen their response. Um, uh, so suppose there's a client, there's a client, let's say from Florida, there's a, a, a company in Florida, 
and they're responding to a proposal in California, let's take San Diego County, right? So this client who knows they can really do well because the, the proposal asks, whatever proposal asks is in their sweet spot. So they're responding to that proposal. They know they can win it. But the other requirement that the bid asks is a local presence. Now, this company in Florida doesn't have a local presence in San Diego County. So what do they do? And what do we help with? So our team jumps in and helps with and identifies a best fit partner who can be a small business partner, who can be a women-owned business, you know, and um, uh, so we make sure that the connection happens and they, they discuss the share, the percentage sharing response. So the business, the subcontractor who's, who is located in San Diego County, who can help increase the scoring and the marks that the Florida client can secure to win the contract is now the Florida becomes a prime and the subcontractor who's in San Diego County, a small business becomes a subcontractor. Um, so the, the best, uh, more than saying there's a disproportionate risk presentation, I would say it depends on how the prime and subcontractor interact with each other because once this is a success, they will go for many other opportunities available in that local, local area. Um, depending on how they worked together. So they will share percentages, maybe it's 80-20 or 70-30, depending on what the subcontractor can offer their services into this proposal once they win. You mentioned a local presence as being required in some of the contracts. How is that defined? So a local presence is usually defined um, by each of the entity. Uh, example, the San Diego County might say we are looking for a, a client who can be of 30 miles or within uh, uh, 30 to 100 mile range within near our office. So that's, they define, they define on their own terms, but mostly they have to be a registered business within that county or within the state. Sorry, say that again? Is what local presence means. You have to be registered. Like, for example, our company is registered in Georgia in this county. So we are, we have a local presence in this county, in this state. Now, in these days of remote working, things have gotten a little bit less clear, if you will, because you have people who are working, quote unquote, in one location and residing in another or spending part of their time in one location or in some cases I understand there are people who are spending a month at a time in different places. How does that affect a contract situation like the one that we're describing or has the government even, the government even taken these possibilities into account? Great question, um, Elena. So uh, they will be very specific because just because someone won a contract doesn't mean that they're not going to discuss negotiating terms even after that. So during the process of negotiation, these uh, you know these terms go back and forth. So the government can still say we did ask for a local presence, but it's okay for you all to re work remotely because we are still following the social distance. So we don't want your um, uh, employee employer uh, employee to come into our building at this time. So there's different scenari scenarios that arise, but. There are opportunities, there are cases or scenarios where a person's requirement is definitely needed because of the hand-holding process that the contractor is teaching the employees of the government uh, staff. Uh, so at that time, they'll be asked to be present. And it'll be made very clear. One of the eligibility criteria would be that we would need at least for 20 to 30 hours of a physical presence of this, uh, of your con of your employee in our building. Or they will say it's okay for y'all to be rem at remote. Government opportunities do give opportunity to ask you question, to ask questions. So during this process, if a contractor is willing to respond to a bid, they can always ask questions during those question time period. Um, just like the question you asked, will it be okay if I'm working remotely or do you need someone specific? So based on the response from the government, they would put their proposal together. What would you say is the percentage of contracts that offer that option of remote work? Because this is an area where I'm seeing a huge divide between what 
prospective employers or prospective business owners in this case want and what employers are offering, there seems to be a gap in communication with like somebody standing out there talking to themselves on either side of the fence and they're not they're not reaching each other's message. Sure. So, um, Elena, again, from what we've seen personally from uh, our interaction in the last few years, uh, specifically even during COVID the last two years, is that um, uh, because technology services, right, technology, can, uh, coding and implementing a software, all that is being done virtually so well. Um, and in fact, I remember one of the mayor came in our webinar and he said in the state of Georgia, almost more than 90% of the cities are not digitally transformed. What does that mean? That they went into chaos during COVID because they've only known working in the building, in person. They've never interacted virtually. So at least 70 to 80% of them didn't even have a laptop at home. Uh, to respond to any city. So they went into chaos and they realized that the digital transformation is something that the local government should start thinking very seriously um, so that they don't completely shut down. In fact, uh, those meetings that need to happen every, uh, you know, based on the laws, state laws, local county or city meetings, even that stop from happening so um, because they were not digitally transformed. So this is something that the government is starting to look at. In fact, um, the U.S. budget that was put out um, even last year, uh, you know, of course, the U.S. budget is entirely complex, but they definitely put out federal budget was like $4.829 trillion for 2021. And they did say because of COVID-19, the priorities have shifted digital transformation system modernization, everything mostly to get into cloud computing. And of course, when you talk about cloud computing, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity comes into play. So these are the top related technology services that the government has noted that they want the local government to take, consider, start considering these things to happen so they can work virtually at any time. Um, so going back to your um, question, yes, there is a, a disparity um, because B2B is a businesses Corporate businesses are allowing their employees to go and work and virtually anywhere. I know people are working out of Bahamas and, you know, their vacation spots, but still the work is being done. Uh, but the government has to shift its uh, thought process uh, and, you know, make sure the employees are accountable still as if they are working in person in the building. Tell us a little bit more or tell us a little bit about cybersecurity issues in relation to these contracts? Oh, yeah, definitely. So that's that's one of our favorite subject or topic to talk about just because we know even the recently passed, um, uh, you know, Job job and Infrastructure Act, which became a bill, uh, has cybersecurity as one of its top, um, uh, you know, uh, topic to be addressed as well. Uh, so when you go virtual, that means some technology is is uh, being used, right? And when you know technology, that means anyone can do a random hack, anyone can do a put into spam attacks and all that, right? So we've seen several scenarios across um, U.S. where, in fact, even one of the Florida county, I believe Oakland or one of the cities pipeline uh, they had sort of increased the uh, amount of, um, uh, I believe, uh, the one of the chemicals for cleaning up the water. They they doubled or ten times the increase, which could have poisoned the whole city, which was interrupted beforehand by one of the tech person over there. So see, these are some spam um, or you know fraud attacks that we are seeing. Or oh, one of the, the city of Atlanta actually, in like in the last one or two years went through a random, um, uh, you know, website attack where the hackers wouldn't give access to the site unless they were paid a ransom. So we are seeing several of these. And in fact, the county that I worked in, at least I know the, the prior uh, CIO mentioned that 
it could be it could be hacked right in the sense like we don't even know if we have the policy set up for cyber for being secured um so the government is realizing that uh, though this was much in the back burner for many of these agencies but after seeing all these attacks where the livelihood of people could be impacted um you know 911 service you know anything people can just place random um a virus attacks on any of these services virtually so the more we go virtual government is placing itself more into these um uh, you know um in a harms way which can cannot be prevented but has to be looked at and tried to be prevented and at least be discussed and full protocol be in place for safety because it's people's lives involved uh, so um, cyber attacks all the way coming from federal government as top priority uh, along with digital transformation now the infrastructure act that was passed um, uh, the, the the trillion dollars that was passed is also going to look at some of the infrastructure cyber attacks which can be prevented is there a requirement for contractors federal for federal contracts to be physically located stateside um if so um, you mean is suppose a federal contract is in uh, some of the monies that is being given out in state of florida your question is should they be located in florida should the contractor who's responding to this uh, bid should be located in florida No, I mean stateside as in within the United States. In other oh, words, God. we're talking about people working remotely. Would a contract as a general rule allow someone to be sitting in I don't know Rome or Pakistan, name a place in the world and be working remotely? Yes. so uh, so there are two parts to it there are some uh, county some local federal government that has specifically asked that no offshore uh, resources can be uh, put towards this uh, towards this response that means the entire response has to be within uh, the employment the resources the the coding everything the supplies has to be from within us right but there are there are spaces where the federal or whether federal or local government does mention very specifically that the entire resources has to be within the us but what has happened is because government opportunities are open globally just like uh, anyone from australia can respond to a government bid in uh, in the city of atlanta right Uh, because atlanta doesn't say hey you can uh, nobody from outside can bid as long as you can prove that you can provide a service what the, the global companies are doing is establishing themselves as a branch within the us so they are able to provide these services in us they have their partners or they have their employees working within the, within the us but the parent company is in is outside of us and what percentage of the contracts would you say are outside the country based um i i really don't have the exact numbers on that but what i can do is definitely look it up and give it give it back to you uh but i can tell you this elena is more and more uh, entities in the government sector or you know as we see more um uh, local asking for local presence that means you cannot be in another country and do a project over here uh, they're asking for uh, their uh, registrations or that the corporation should exist in this county or in this state or even in the federal government should be exist should should be uh, have a presence within the US um because some of the US government uh, departments and everything go through a high level security clearance so if you are outside of US it's very hard to get through that uh, proving your company and your taxes and all that so those are the reasons some of the uh, outside companies uh, outside of US do not bother to respond to some of these federal high level security uh, responses um but uh, it is open but many are very becoming very clearer in their questioning to the government to the entity saying that it has to be only on sure it cannot be offshore resources so there itself the company outside of us is not eligible because eligibility is the company has to be onshore 
how does that work in terms of these issues that we're seeing, especially the remote work, but also the issues of affordable housing, which we now have apparently an affordable housing crisis nationwide and even worldwide. Apparently, the United Nations has declared a worldwide affordable housing crisis. How do these two things work together? Because, of course, if you have a requirement of an address or the U.S. resources, within what radius, for example, does that allow? Does someone have to be in order to fulfill the requirements of a contract? Um, so again, the, uh, if, if the company feels that they are they are lacking some or the other requirements, that is where partnerships comes along. Collaborative partnerships happen um, with the company A, company B, or company C. There are there are many sometimes four or five companies merge together or collaborate together actually to respond to an RFP where each of them is meeting that eligibility criteria and promising the government that they're able to provide these deliverables and here's their partnership agreement and collaborative opportunity and each one is bringing that sweet spot to make this happen. Um, so, and that can be one of them is outside of you, outside of um, US or uh, you know, might be is, uh, and again, these are companies. These are, they're not just talking about people. So within that company, there are 500 employees, 400 employees. Uh, so the com- so as when I used to be in positions where I was reviewing RFP responses, all I asked was, I need a cup to be built. And these are the requirements. The cup cannot break when we, you know, put it down. So when, res- when we used to read the responses, we used to read responses that would say, hey, it would cost us one million to do this. And then we saw responses that said it would cost us 200,000 to do this, right? But we might not be able to give you in a red form. We can give it to you in a green green color versus the one million dollar said uh, is giving all those additional uh, cushion that we really didn't need for. So I, as um, a reviewer of the government, you know, response uh, from these entities, uh, and because these are all taxpayers' money, we as government thinking is, why would we want to spend one million on this when we can get it for two hundred thousand? So now, so again, it depends on entities to entities. Um, on um, and again, government is changing its thought process. Old school leadership is not going to really uh, change in the post or the COVID world uh, where they have to start putting out different uh, requirements in order for things to make happen. And again, you have to realize, Elena, government is risk-covers, right? They don't want to get into risky situations. They want to make sure that they have someone who can work and del- because the, deliver- the, the deliverable is depending on how they're serving the community. Sometimes you go into some government websites and it just like it, it really frustrates you because it's too slow, too slow to even get to the next phase. So you didn't get your uh, services met through the government. So you start complaining. There are hundreds and thousands of people complaining. Hey, we tried to get this. Your form doesn't work. You're this. The government wants to make sure whatever they're getting for them, you know, for the less of the dollars, which they say lowest bid winner, right? Someone who put the lowest bid wins, makes sure that the quality is good enough. Uh, nowadays, some of the companies are becoming more creative and they're saying, if you want completely onshore resources, it's going to cost 200000 But if you, if we can offer some of these services offshore, complete secure uh, secure compliance com- security and compliance we can do the same for 125,000 so the government can decide um, whether 200,000 works for them or the 125 works for them in these days of partisanship I can imagine many of our listeners saying oh, but if you don't have an in in that particular department or government entity at someone who supports you from a political uh, position, there's no way that you're going to gain a contract. What can you tell us about that? Great question, Elena, and we get asked this almost every day. I would say it's a myth. Um, I've been in the government. I've seen the other side. I've seen how we as reviewers, it's not just one reviewer, it's eight reviewers reviewing your response, right? It, it has, so we are reviewing, you, you, suppose you are, you have responded to one of the bits and so have five others. 
seven of us are looking at all those five bits. There's a process. Again, it's risk averse, so you cannot get into any risk. Nowadays, I'm also seeing more and more disclaimer forms where the disclaimer is asking you, did you did you um, contribute uh, for any political uh, campaign in this area for any of these commissioners or city council members or mayor? Um, you know, so they're asking for that disclaimer uh, also as well. So, but the review process is the reviewers don't know you. They don't, uh, the, the elected officials don't get involved. So the politicians don't get involved in reviewing these. The department head reviews and uh, financial, the, your financial stability is all scored. Then a scoring is, and then the reviewers come together to say who's first scored, who's second, who's third, who's fourth. And then that is submitted to the department head and then presented during the commissioners or the council members meeting to, um, and which is open to the public as well. So they get to hear, oh, this is the one who scored first. So now the politician cannot go and change the reviewers review of these scores and say, oh, I like this, this person uh, donated to my campaign or I like these people better. So they'll do better. So, so you can see um, when you see some of these uh, corruption or, you know, a higher level or under the table stuff happening, usually it usually it isn't caught uh, because the, the other other submitting agencies usually do a protest. And so they, you know, ask in a legal way to share share why this person was or this company was given a contract. And um, I know there have been people and who ended up behind bars um, because either they they took favors uh, under the table or they didn't follow the process sometimes. But because comes through different departments. It's not just one department deciding to say, uh, you know, let's go give this. This is my friend. He's been very friendly with me or she's been very friendly. Let me give the contract to them. And that's why they follow these protocols and processes very carefully in to an extent where there's a no contact policy. Once the RFP is out, you just cannot contact if any contractor who's respond or any vendor who's responding to a contract, um, a bid cannot be in communication with any of these decision-making reviewers um, because then they would be rejected. Uh, they would plainly be said, you we told you not to make any contact. You've made a contact with our decision maker. So, you know, you, you cannot, you cannot be, we cannot review your, your thing. So there are several steps set up to avoid what you just said, um, where you, where we think that uh, because of some contact, uh, someone won. There are opportunities where there's a 30 million plus, 50 million plus proposal out there. And during those times, there are discussions that happen internally, and sometimes the elected officials have an, you know, have a um, opportunity to speak their mind and say, "Hey, I've looked at what they've done in the past. They did great." Or they can also say, "Hey, the previous vendor was not at all good. They sucked. They didn't provide us the deliverable in time." Uh, and so, can you all look at other who are all out there? So those opportunities happen, but directly coming and saying this person needs to get the contract doesn't happen. There are other processes in place where if it's less than $25,000 or less than $100,000 based on the city, state or county, they do say that they don't have to go through a bid as long as the vendor can provide that they can do this fully and the decision maker of that department uh, has conversations with other decision makers and says, Yes, let's, you know, let's uh, give them, they provided us a good proposal. This doesn't have to go through a bid because it's less than this much dollars. So they're awarded, but not based on friendship or someone had a photo op with some of the elected officials at all. In these days of also division between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the masked and the unmasked, what can you tell us about those issues, if anything, in relation to these contracts? Uh, so, yeah, so uh, government cannot uh, really decide and say, so they will have their policies, like see, uh, suppose uh, someone won a contract already, yeah, Elena, and they have to, uh, and now they're not government employees, they're a contractor who've come into the building to do certain stuff. And the policy clearly in the building entrance says strict mask um, and social distancing followed. The contractor cannot come with no mask and say 
that's my company's policy that I don't have to wear a mask. But they've entered into a government building, building that has asked for a certain policy. So it's just like you had you you respect that and you follow that. So based on specific individuality, it would be what the policies that the government buildings have set up. Um, I, I remember going into public buildings and mask was strictly followed, including the judges, uh, you know, the decision makers or the employees. Everyone had. So I can't just go in and say I don't want to wear a mask, right? So I followed that policy that was set up for everyone else. Um, but as for this reviewing your protocol, um, reviewing your response. Uh, I doubt if there are any. Uh, uh, they don't. They do not ask for. Um, you know, will you, you know, will you, uh, do you, do you, does your company believe in mask policy? No, that is not asked because that is again a discriminatory way of, uh, you know, uh, identifying your contractors. But they will, uh, they will have some forms that if you are a responding agency and if you, start, if you win this contract and we are coming into the negotiation piece, we want you to sign this form beforehand itself, which is we will abide by the rules and compliance that the that the government asks you to, and probably mask mask would be one of them. But I doubt if vaccination is uh, that at all uh, in any uh, government entity, unless if it's a flight, you know, requirement, international travel, etc. But uh, apart from that, this is not a specific question that's asked during a response for a bid. You know, uh, do you believe in a mask or vaccination policy or not? You mentioned early on that you recommend people start at the local level rather than at the federal level. Is that right? Yes. For small businesses who've never, uh, there are millions of, um, thousands and thousands of businesses who've never touched the government contracting space. So what we are saying is there are opportunities. You have the service that the government wants. So why don't you start? coming into the playing field because right now you're outside of the playing field and instead of going into the federal government that asks for multiple paperwork certification and all that start with the local government which doesn't require you to have any certification to actually start bidding but please go ahead with your question well what i was going to say there are municipalities that have a long track record of not contracting to certain groups and so some people don't want to follow that path because they're convinced that they will never be awarded a contract or they have submitted and have never been successful. What do you recommend to those people? Definitely. What we've seen is um, uh, we've had people come to us saying, hey, we've never touched the government contract, but we know it's a sustainable method of expanding our business. Uh, and like we say, government is never going to say you don't have to pay taxes anymore, right? So government money is always going to be there, whether cities, municipalities, uh, municipalities or states or counties or federal. Um, and so our thing is we want to make sure and we coach the companies fully to make sure that proposal is strengthened. What we've seen is they submit almost 80%, but they miss out on the 20% of the responses that could have improved their scores. Number two, uh, and the reason why we started what we are doing right now, Elena, is when I was in the government, I realized that people submitted sometimes five minutes late. After working so hard for one month on that proposal, they submitted five minutes late and it was rejected because they didn't submit it on time, right? And the second re another reason that I saw during the same time was the same person, same company for the last 20 years that has been submitting proposals after proposals, but they've not updated themselves to the recent technologies. So when I was deciding on some of that, I would say, you know, it, sometimes I've had uh, situations where we didn't award to any, any of those two, right, because they were rejected because they submitted late and the other one did not have enough of what we requested. So we would do a market research analysis and put the bid out again to make sure that more and more are aware uh, of this opportunity and we get the right person to do the job. Because when we don't get the right person to do the job, it becomes frustration on both the sides because now we are not able to be efficient or being accountable in the right place because the contractor doesn't have the resources that they said they might, they could gather during when we reviewed the RFP process. So there are opportunities that you will see certain uh, scenarios where none of them were awarded because they didn't feel anyone 
properly into the criteria what i would say is that um that's why to have a professional firm or a coach helping you navigate the system so that there are less bumps in the road um which we sort of called cutting the red tape so this coaching a professional firm would be able to help in assisting with making sure the proposal is strong enough Uh, get the right subcontractor to them in place probably like make sure that in any game uh, to get into the playing field you you have a coach to help you in any game no matter what soccer you know you have the coach to guide you empower you hold your hand and teach you all the competitive uh, what's going on in the you know market research analysis and all that and then you submit that proposal so your time spent was worth rather than many of them we've seen just want to try out and see how it goes and then they're wasting their time and of course they're not going to hear back from the government because because government already figured out you were just trying out because they asked you for all these you sub, you didn't submit any of these and you just answered 10 questions that's not going to win anyone a contract what kind of a budget should companies interested in in succeeding not just participating in the process but as you said going through and being successful what kind of a budget should they have in mind is it a percentage of the contract that they seek is there a flat fee if especially if they're considering hiring a coach as you mentioned what budget requirements or percent of etc should they take into account definitely so um i would want to say and because i want to make sure everybody has the information um i would want to say that any of this that a coach can do the company can do it themselves but again like i mentioned it could take them 2 years 3 years to figure out where they've gone wrong what they've done wrong right or it could take them hours of frustration uh, of not understanding the government language so you definitely want to hire a coaching firm there are firms that um uh you know talk there there are firms that are just subscription model they'll just tell you give you videos and audios and go into the subscribe to this subscribe to that there are firms that could cost you like much beyond uh, only the large corporations can afford them there are normal firms that will just help you with certification there are proposal writers who can just help you with proposal writing so it depends each time it, every time we speak to a firm it depends on what their needs are um but majority of the time when we see a new firm have no idea what how to get into the government sector i would say that investment of a minimum of starting anywhere from 10000 to 20000 uh, would help bring this coach or the professional firm to help them and again these are basic um uh, this is not for months this is like sometimes for 8 months to 1 year right so again depends on what the firm is looking for maybe a firm is looking for just a certification and it depends how many firms are offering a certification within 10000 15000 20000 because again getting a certification for, as a gsa contractor or getting into 8a for set aside programs is not as easy right it will require the time between the firm and the and the um, uh, and the vendor or the firm, uh, or the company uh, to go through back and forth back and forth of hours and the deliverables to get to get the certification so that those pricings differ but i would say anywhere starting from 20 20k would be something that they would start to consider and the pricing would add based on what they're looking for whether they want to just go into federal whether they want to go into state county or city or they're looking to just become a subcontractor or just certifications there's several services and or sometimes the company have done business with the government and at this time they don't have a proposal writer so they're just looking for proposal writers so what we say is instead of hiring proposal writer separately this person that person we come in uh, especially our our professional firm comes in as a uh, an extended team of that company to help them as a one stop shop providing end to end solutions tell us about the types of certifications if you will yes so certainly so there are federal certifications and then there are um, state certifications or local county certifications again local county is you are there are also self self uh, classification so you can classify yourself and write the proposals that you are a women owned business but then in order to get into um 
in order to get into these uh, opportunities with the real certification, the state, county or cities offer what is called um, women owned or minority business. So uh, there are certain you have to prove yourself to be minority business. You have to show you are you are within a less less than this amount of income revenue in the last two or three years. Um, and then you have to show that you're less than like almost 10 to 50 employees. You cannot be a huge big corporation and claim yourself as a small business. So there are certain requirements that you have to fill in and show t share with them the tax returns of the last two or three years, your personal assets. It's a huge process to get into these small businesses. But in the federal level, you have something called the GSA contracting, which is sort of a um, general service administration contracting. And then again, within the certification, you have just into IT or commodities or staffing services. So it goes like six to eight months to get these certifications. Then in the uh, in the federal level, you also have the 8A certification, which is sort of set aside. Again, it's a small business uh, set aside. So because you're a small business, you have all these dollars competing among only those small businesses. So the large businesses cannot compete for these. Um, and then you have, of course, the women-owned, the veteran-owned, the dis disabled, um, disadvantaged business, which is for mostly for Asians or Hispanics or um, you know, uh, non. Uh, so you have the disadvantaged business. So there are several requirements that is needed. Sometimes people think just having a certification is going to win them contracts. No, having a certification puts them in a little bit higher level uh, where. Uh, some of the contracts within the states go have to show that there's a 5% they have achieved for women-owned businesses. So when the, fed, when the, when the reporting comes out of that state or the federal government and they've only offered 3.2% of their contracts to women-owned business, they're not in a good shape. They have to show that it's more than 5%. Uh, so in those places, the certifications really help. But again, these are back and forth documentation and a lot of meetings that need to happen to get these uh, certifications. But in local level, we, we don't encourage people to start with certifications because what happens is when you start with certifications, more that you think about bureaucracy all the time, right? So the only bureaucracy, so you lose that uh, um, uh, enthusiasm to get into government contracts. So we, Simon, we ask we ask firms or uh, companies to look at the responding to bids, become a subcontractor or a prime, and then simultaneously, slowly after eight months, one year, start getting some of those certifications. It sounds like there would be some categories of businesses that would lend themselves better than others to these contracts. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, though, so ultimately, what is the government looking at? Government is looking at that you provide them the deliverable that they've asked for with a very nominal pricing because these are taxpayers' dollars. So they don't want to spend a million dollars on a huge company, on a big company to get a deliverable done. What they would like is if you can prove in your response that you are very well placed and your team is very committed to make this happen and you would provide the best of the contractors uh, to get this job done, right? Um, that is what they are asking. So some of these large corporations are better placed because they are organized, they have the resources. Um, they can, even, even when the government is paying after two months or three months sometimes, these corporations are not going to go out of business, right? Uh, so they're looking for some financial stability. Um, they're looking for experts in that field. Uh, they're also looking for organized uh, organizational skills and good communication. Uh, the majority of so these are scores that are scored, Elena. So out of hundred percentage, um, you know they have probably for local presents two percent score. Uh, for women owned, maybe three percent score. For your project scope of work that you're able to do, that's 45 to 50% of the scoring, right? Then who are the people you are, the professional experts that you're providing to this project, they are scored maybe for 10 to 20%. Amount of time that you're able to put on this project, your whole team or your contracting team, how much time is it able to put to this contract is probably uh, another 20%. So even if you don't have your certification and you have a subcontractor, that's fine. But if you can prove the large scoring points of your professional experience, 
the references that you can bring, who, whom have you worked for, similar or to the same, um, uh, you know, to the same service, whom have you worked for in the past? If you can bring those references, some of those help you score more. Basically, these reviewers have not met you, the company who's responding to a bid. They only look at the proposal that you respond to. So if you just submit a two-page, three-page, you're not telling a story. You have to tell a story that the government, in government's language, that the government understands. Yes, you asked for this. This is what we've done. Uh, you asked for this. This is the solution we are providing. And we are doing this with the best pricing and even if you want. And there are other strategies that can help, uh, you know, catch the reviewer's attention, such as, as I said, if you're able to do offshore, we are able to offer you 30% off. You know, so things like that. So that's how they're usually scored, the responses. I think I didn't ask the question well. What, I, what I'm trying to get at is there are certain services that lend themselves perhaps better than others for government contracts. Uh, just an idea that comes to mind is, you know, is a mortuary likely to get a government contract versus someone that works in cybersecurity or someone that works in marketing? Are there categories that lend themselves better for these government contracts? Yes, definitely. It, definitely the technology services. Because Just because I said the top priority for government right now is IT modernization and, and, and investments, digital transformation. So any technology firms, whether local county, local city or the federal government, is, government is looking for these. Um, during the COVID time, the PPE became a huge hit. Like all those who were providing masks and uh, anything to protect uh, the transmission of COVID virus, um, they were like hugely in demand and still are. Any company that provides provided gloves in millions of dollars, you know, uh, of uh, amount that they, that the government needed in order to secure a safe workforce back reentry into in, you know back uh, to work. Um, so those companies were definitely needed. All the others are usually much required, such as the cleaning services. Uh, construction is always happening. Sometimes there was a lag during this time, engineering services. But I would put probably the technology services uh, on top. Um, all the I, I wouldn't say like they are more important. I would say every service that is needed, because ultimately we are the one who are getting served. The communities are getting served by the government, right? They cannot put a stop and they can they cannot say, hey, all this has happened, so we are not going to do this. But what has happened is this priorities have shifted at this point. So the, all the other contracts are continuing to happen, but the priority and the budget, and uh, because of the relief money, uh, again and again, the relief packages are coming out. So making sure that the previous budget is not being impacted or cut off for normal services but are added on for cybersecurity digital transformation services as well. Nazira, thank you for joining us from Metro Atlanta, Georgia. Definitely. Thank you, Elena, so much. And um, we really appreciate you. And to our audience, you have been listening to Nazira Dawood, who is Chief Executive Officer of Vendorship, Inc., who discussed how minority businesses can win government contracts. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.